Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Leor Sapir, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a driven researcher with a PhD in political science from Boston College. Dr. Sapir previously completed his postdoctoral fellowship at the Program on Constitutional Government at Harvard University. His academic work, including his dissertation on the Obama administration's Title IX regulations, has investigated how America's political culture and constitutional government shape public policy on matters of civil rights. I welcome Leo Sapir to Savage Minds. I've been writing about this subject for a decade now, and I like to say this because it's true. I don't say it just for saying it. I intensely dislike this subject because I keep coming back to the problems that your article points out very coherently. The lack of scientific evidence, Mm. uh, the problems with the epistemology behind what we're discussing, and a lot of the academic hokum that is circulated in order to create what I like to call, you use another term in your piece, but I call it an intellectual pyramid scheme where everyone's <laughs> sort of, I'm going to write how elephants can fly. Then you cite me about how I wrote that. that therefore elephants right. fly. And that's right. sort of what's gone on here in yeah. many respects. And your piece, so you had two pieces in city journal that I've read. Mm-hmm. I love them. The article from this spring, you open with an analysis of North Carolina's bathroom bill covering mm. the vast misrepresentations of this bill with Attorney General Loretta Lynch comparing it to Jim Crow. I mean, mm. really laugh or cry at that, to the Supreme Court's 2020 decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, which deemed that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects transgendered people and gay people from employment discrimination under mm-hmm. ordinary public meaning, in quotes, of sex. Mm-hmm. But you go on to show how the opinion, which was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, details the court's decision that specifies that sex-specific accommodations would not be affected. But you also go on to know, right. since that decision, anything but has happened. In fact, they've leaped to what he said should not be interpreted from that case. And at one point in your piece, you get at an issue I would like to kick off with because your piece is so good. I could just read it every day. It really, no, I really enjoyed it because sometimes I've been sitting down to write a piece and I get very annoyed at the stupidity of what's going on here. I sometimes just can't find the right words (laughs) and you do. And this is what I'm going to quote. At the heart of these legal controversies is the question of what makes people male or female. Without exception, courts in the education lawsuits have based their answer on what they have learned from the medical experts who Uh testify or file amicus briefs on the behalf of transgender students. Yet the arguments that these experts present to federal judgments are highly partisan interpretations of an already limited and often methodologically flawed body of research. Uh Their interpretations seem geared to producing a desired legal outcome rather than faithfully reporting on an ongoing medical debate. And that is the linchpin of what's been going on in the 10 years I've been involved in critiquing this madness. Mm-hmm. I see this over and over and over. I mean, just skip to transgender sports. We've got someone like Joanna Harper, mm. who has been putting out information to support what the IUC had been doing with certain testosterone levels. But once again, we're arguing that we don't breathe water. We're arguing that gravity exists. And at the same time, we've got these people saying, 
oh, but sex is on a spectrum. You know, mm. circa 2014, 15, all over Twitter in what was then very underground still, but all over the gender critical underground. This is what I got to read every day. Well, that's my gender identity. That's not my gender presentation. Right. And you see them making this stuff up as, as they go along. And yeah. in the last paragraph of your piece, you were quite generous in your rendering of the debate. I used to be like that, and I'm far <laughs> less because I've had 10 years of seeing men purport to be women based on a stereotype and vice versa mm. for the woman, although I would make a very big distinction between the two because the reasoning for both are sociologically different. Mm, and yeah. uh, a lot of people don't understand that. They're just like, well, anyone can identify as. And so I'm seeing the encroachment of men and women's safe spaces, changing mm. rooms, prison cells. Recently in the UK, it was a scandal just last week where the police in Sussex were telling people not to misgender a child rapist who was mm. about to be placed in a woman's prison. Can you mm -hmm. believe that? Where mm, there's a maternity yeah. ward? And yeah. so we're living in a really, and I'm a left, left, left person. Mm. Full confession, I taught gender studies, but not this stuff. I taught yeah. like when it was emerging and it was queer studies was more of a liberatory voice from Walt Whitman to Proust to Oscar Wilde. It wasn't men can be women, that mm. sex is mutable, that lesbians have penises. And the shark got jumped because I was living outside of the English speaking world for many years. Mm. I was doing work in other countries and I came back and I'm gay myself. I, I was in a lesbian bar in the West Village in 1998 mm. and saw all this stuff about trans. And I was like, what has that to do with us? Yeah. Well, you know, we were discriminated against too. And I was like, <laughs> stevedores are discriminated against in certain parts of the world. I mean, we're not just going to add on everyone who wants to have an identity. Right. And in one of your pieces, I use an expression that you used in the title, I believe about it's the most recent piece you did just last week, right. that the T is piggybacking on the LGB. I use that expression or they've hitched their caboose to our wagon, but it's all very almost consciously. And I guess seeing where the money's coming from, it's a quite conscious erosion of women's rights and gay rights under the moniker of liberation, but it's anything but. This is the most homophobic thing I've lived through in my life. Mm. I've never seen such homophobia where now I see men who are taking up the most regressive stereotypes of women and telling gay men if they don't sleep with trans men and people like me, if I don't sleep with a lesbian with a penis that were transphobic, it's gone really nuts, Laura. Yeah. And so I read your piece and that one section I just referred to, to me is the linchpin about what's happening. We've seen a bifurcation between factual, methodological work in this field. I've interviewed on the show people who are experts in neurology, like Gina Rippon. She was mm. on the show. She's written a book about it. She's done work on the gendered brain. She has very clear information. No. In fact, the slight differences between male and female brains are so slight that as she explained to me, if you just took randomly a brain and told a specialist, even her, to say, is it a man or a woman, it would be very difficult to do unless by size, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we're seeing where there's a lot of, well, if you're going to say that men shouldn't be on the women's swim team, then what do you do with short men and tall men? Like they like to jump to that right. conclusion too. Right, right. So this is on the one hand, a philosophical issue that's crazy making because the science is so far showing nothing. 
There were studies about five years ago, people tried to say, were showing that there was a transgender brain, and there was no repetition of that one study. There was mm -hmm. no proof, in fact, that there's a thing called that. Mm -hmm. But when you see the rhetoric coming out of this community, it's one stereotype after another after another. We knew how to bat this down when Rachel Dolezal told the world she was black. Right. Why has this become so acceptable that people lend a shoulder to Bridget because he thinks he's a woman? <laughs> I think we've come to this very strange space where empirical and epistemological information is being vetted by those who have an interest to vet it. Mm. And the rest of us are being called bigots. Mm. So I want to sort of jump off with that section because I do think the issue of what is being reported and what is being researched and then cited is a huge part of the problem because you've got mm. two camps. And you go over this also in terms of intersex conditions. The same yeah. thing where you have Leonard Sachs in one corner, right? And mm -hmm. then it's escaped my her name. Yeah, Anna Fausta Sterling. Yes, she hyperinflates those numbers based on something that, as you point out, those men in her additional numbers would never mm. have known they had an intersex condition until right. fertility right. issues arise. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you, you've put a lot on the table there, and I think I agree with, with virtually all of it. I mean, it strikes me that um, one of the reasons why this movement has managed to make so many inroads in our institutions, um, in, in particular, I think medicine and education, but also in, in you know, criminal justice, you mentioned prisons and other institutions and the media, the way in which it's spoken of and reported. Um, the reason why it's made so many inroads and its, uh, its accomplishments have been proven so hard to push back against um, is because you know, I think a, a central tenet of this movement is no debate, no public expression of skepticism, no questioning of its claims ever by anyone for any reason, unless they are even more extreme in the views that they put forward. Um, and in that regard, it's kind of this, this collective mania that we're going through, because you know, if, 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 you're, if you can pin down an activist and actually have them defend their claims. You don't need an, uh, you know, an advanced degree in philosophy to quickly point out the obvious contradictions. And I go through some of those contradictions in, in my writings, but just to give you a couple examples, in the case, let's talk about sports for a second. Um, you know, the, 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 the trans movement activists have said, um, and I can give you numerous examples of this by major trans rights organizations, including the Human Rights Campaign, the ACLU, they've said um, that the only, the only proper determinant of whether a person is a man or a woman is their gender identity, that our physical attributes have absolutely nothing to do with it. But in the context of sports, they haven't been willing to make that argument, interestingly enough. They've said, no, no, all we're saying is that a blanket ban on all trans women from women's sports is overly broad and therefore unconstitutional. Meaning, according to their own logic, it would be perfectly legitimate and well within the bounds of the constitution for a state to prohibit the participation of at least some people who identify as women from women's sports. Now, it's obvious from a political perspective why they would come to that position, because if they do away with the physical distinctions of, among the sexes, and they say that male and female refer only to gender identity, women's sports is gone, or at least on paper it's gone, right? Some people would argue, okay, but there's so few trans athletes, they wouldn't really affect much. Okay, sure, but you know, don't forget, you, you only need one Leah Thomas swimming in the pool 
to send uh, these kind of ripple effects and a, a message to young, a whole generation of young women of don't, don't even bother competing, I'll beat you. Um, so even one or two prominent trans athletes in a particular area of competition can have massive um, demoralizing effects and can uh, really kind of um, turn the clock back on women's sports. Um, but to, to get back to my point, um, it's, it's not, you know, it's not convenient for trans activists to be consistent with their own arguments about human nature in the case of sports. So they just retreat to a different position. And, you know, you can call them out on this as much as you want. You can say, look, in, in lawsuits regarding bathrooms, you say that gender identity is the only thing that matters. In lawsuits regarding sports, you say, no, no, physical attributes do matter. Um, which is it? But those kinds of debates in which kind of philosophical positions can be investigated, interrogated, um, are, are just not happening. And they're not happening, I, I would argue, and I have made this point publicly, precisely because I think the trans movement is not oppressed and marginalized. On the contrary, uh, I think you would be hard pressed to find a better example of a movement representing such a tiny minority of people that exercises so much power and influence in, in the economic sphere. Think of kind of the, the total capture of this on this issue of corporate America. In the political sphere, you have the party in power, the dominant party in American politics, the Democratic Party, fully on board with this stuff, um, with absolutely no Democratic politician willing to even raise questions, let alone take a contrary position. Um, in academia, in media, in peer review publications, uh, medical associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, sports organizations, it's one institution after the other that have all succumbed to this ideology. Um, and I say ideology very loosely here because it's really kind of a bunch of incoherent ideas that contradict one another. Um, and you know that to me is not an example of an oppressed minority. That is an example of a minority that that exercises a huge amount of influence. Hello, ten yeah. years in ten years they got. Yeah. They have achieved so much power. They were yeah. able. Remember when the bathroom bill happened and PayPal yeah. boycotted North Carolina? Oh, yeah. yeah. I yeah. want PayPal to boycott. I'm joking here. <laughs> I want PayPal to boycott men. The yeah. thing is, and I'm I'm joking, but. The reality is that we know that violence against women and girls is still a thing. With lockdown, right. it was more of a thing. You son, right. no lip service paid. I mean, I joke about this all the time because, well, I'm in a country where we were really with Melbourne, probably the worst case studies of torture during mm -hmm. lockdown, mm -hmm. having to print out papers every other day, a different paper. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'd have to go back in and, oh, that was from two days ago and print a new one out because the government changes its mind like most people yeah. change their underwear. Right. And I was thinking all these senators in the Democratic Party worrying about pronouns when yeah. human rights were being, mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a lot of questions there. And getting back to something you said earlier, I also wanted to say what the ACLU has done because there's, which ACLU are you talking about? Because I don't know if you follow Chase Strangio on Twitter. Yeah. But this individual is uh, completely against any kind of barring of males on girls' teams, or mm. vice, you know, vice versa. Although vice mm -hmm. versa doesn't really figure in, um, they use a lot of these quote unquote trans male athletes as window dressing right. because they're no menace. Right. And the ACLU position, though, it seems to be that there's this wavy thing happening with the ACLU on social media because Strangio is always putting out stuff that goes counter to any kind of concession that men should not be on women's teams. Right. I think the problem with that goes back to, wait, if this lobby is going to say that sex 
is oppressive and it's a fiction. They say sex is between your legs and gender is between your ears. That's one of their 2015-16 statements they would make. The one question I always would give them, then if sex doesn't exist, what are you transitioning to? You see, and this is a question no one wants to touch because as you notice, they constantly move the goalpost and change the discussion. Right, right. I mean, so I, I've called this strategy lily hopping. Um, and and I, so, so what I mean by that is that there really is, at least, and I'm, I'm gonna talk about the American context, although I, you know, it's, it's very applicable to other countries too, but um, uh, in the American context, there seem to be two independent conversations happening um, that, that both kind of together comprise the trans issue. Um, one is a philosophical question about the basis of human sex differences. Um, what is it that make us, makes us male or female? Are there other categories of being other than these two? Um, is sex really assigned at birth? Uh, you know, what is gender identity? How can it be scientifically uh, verified? All these kinds of things, right? Is it, what, what is a lived experience? What differentiates it from a, a regular experience? Um, what's its epistemological status? All these super fascinating and, and relevant questions are on the philosophical question of what is sex? What is gender? But then there's a, a separate set of questions that obviously overlaps with the first, that concerns medical treatment for a psychological condition nowadays known as gender dysphoria. And just to illustrate how these two questions can operate um, independent of one another, it's perfectly possible, at least kind of at a superficial level, it's perfectly possible for somebody to say, look, trans women are really men, but for those men who have severe gender dysphoria, Um, and for whom, uh, you know, living uh, as a woman, meaning having others recognize them as being a woman in certain contexts, alleviates that dysphoria. It makes their life livable for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I am willing to treat a man as a woman. I'm willing to use that person's preferred name and pronouns. Of course, there's going to be limits to that um, when, with regard to prisons and sports teams and, and maybe in certain circumstances, bathrooms and things like that, certainly locker rooms, anywhere where full nudity is, is required or at least permitted. Um, so, you know, we can make accommodations, but um, the question of how to treat gender dysphoria doesn't necessarily depend on the question of what really makes somebody male or female. We could all pretend that a man, that a man is really a woman or a woman is really a man if doing so is scientifically demonstrated to reduce their dysphoria. Um, so, so that's why I mean, so, so there's these two different conversations. And when I say lily hopping, What I mean by that is that, especially in the context of the courts, um, lawsuits, which is where we Americans like to solve almost all of our problems in the courts, every issue ultimately ends up in the courts. In the issue, in the context of litigation, what you see is activists kind of just hopping from one of those issues to the next. And anytime uh, the other side pins them down and almost gets them to, to show defeat, they just hop to the other issue. And it's impossible to to achieve any kind of resolution. So just to give you an example, um, in the the context of the Title IX lawsuits, where courts were asked whether if a school treats uh, a a female student who identifies as as a boy, um, if the school refuses to allow that student to use the boys' restrooms, um, whether that's discrimination, quote, on the basis of sex and therefore impermissible under Title IX, you know, the, the, the trans advocacy groups that have litigated this issue 
have said to the courts, look, gender identity is an innate and immutable property of persons. Um, and we also have medical organizations saying that, that the uh, only uh, treatment for gender dysphoria is gender affirming care. Um, but if you look at the amicus briefs and you look at the arguments and the analysis, the, the, the lawyers advocating on behalf of the trans plaintiffs don't prove either one of those arguments. And every time you think that they're just about to give you the kicker, the bottom line, the, the thing that would constitute evidence, they switch to the other argument. Um, so, and so that's what I mean by lily hopping. There's never an opportunity to just say, okay, let's now talk about the philosophical question and investigate it all the way through to its logical conclusion. Um, so that's, I think, how, how this movement has managed to build so much momentum and to capture so many institutions and to achieve so much in the policy realm without actually having a coherent um, philosophical understanding of the human person or without having good scientific evidence for, for the transitioning of, of children. Well, the transitioning of children is like sports. Those are the two topics that even the pro-gender ideology folks, a lot of them will put brakes on and say, well, not all though, it's a bit disturbing even then, but we'll go into your most recent piece where you go over the polls in a bit, because that mm. also reveals some interesting information. But I'll, I wanna go back to what you just said. When I started working on this 10 years ago, I interviewed a feminist scholar from the UK, Julia Long. Met mm. her in a cafe near my home in central London, and I was using the pronouns. And she stopped mm -hmm. me and she said, why are you doing that? A very nice woman. She talked to me about her views on that, and I have thought about this. And I'll mm. tell you something, as a female, as a woman who grew up as a girl, one thing that we are socialized into doing is conceding, mm. conceding in all ways. The disparity in wages is not a fluke. It's not like it happens in Canada, but it doesn't happen in the States. It happens around the planet. And it mm. happens because, well, go back to lockdown. The mm. governments knew very well who was going to be doing the homeschooling. They knew very well which one of the parents would be giving up their jobs, their autonomy, their financial freedoms. In many cases, pensions, because a lot of people in Italy haven't been paying into their pensions, have been unemployed. They knew who that demographic was, and it wasn't the penis havers. And <laughs> I say penis havers because I'm being ironic here. Now, I don't know if you're I've kept up with what's been going on in the UK where Cancer UK called women cervix havers. Mm -hmm. We've been called menstruators. We've been called womb carriers. The most denigrating terms have been used by official government organizations, educational institutions, intellectuals in academia, publishers, well-known people within the arts and entertainment. I mean, we have been denigrated to such a point that when Julia Long asked me that question and I had to sit down and thought about it, she was right. And I'll tell you this also, and I use this example, but I've also spoken to other clinicians in the field to include Ray Blanchard and many at the Tavistock in London, some of the whistleblowers have come oh. on the show. And I asked many of these people, in all of psychiatric and psychological history, has there ever been one diagnosis of any sort where part of the recovery, part of the therapy is society will confirm. We can use anorexia. The feminists use this all the time. Mm -hmm. Am I going to go and tell Michelle that she is fat? She weighs 
52 kilos, but at five foot 10, she's fat. No. Am I going to go to my GP and say, I'm a kleptomaniac. And he's going to say, Hey, we've got a solution for that. The NHS has a visa gold for you. So no more stealing, just buy on the state. So anything Uh you want, just buy it. Uh And I can go on and on. Uh, Stockholm syndrome. I worked Uh on a project of that in the West Bank and in Uh Jerusalem, Uh where I interviewed a subject who worked in cleaning up bodies after suicide bombers would explode themselves. And one of his criticisms of the Palestinian narrative was that they have Stockholm syndrome. They are in love with their oppressor and so forth. And in explaining why Israelis who tried to explain away what they perceive the ills of their government, that they're in love with their oppressor. And Mm -hmm. when I think about this, I think, is there, would I go to my clinician and say, I've just been kidnapped and I want to marry my kidnapper. He's in jail, but you know, would the, would the therapist say, well, go marry him. Like I have heard and not read of one psychiatric or psychological diagnosis where the response is society must mirror your desire, your self-perception and what I would call your personality because I can't underscore enough, Laura, how much of what is being called gender identity is nothing other. Well, I'll go to gender. Gender is stereotype. Gender is stereotype, full stop. And it's, it it can be a feeling to someone who might regard that as their be all of their identity, just like someone might really relate only to people who bowl. All their friends are on the bowling league. They go to work and then they bowl. They watch bowling, they bowl. And I can go home and I've just made some pumpkin bread last night. I can say my pumpkin bread is the best. And Leo, if you do not say that, you're going to have the West Yorkshire police knocking on your door. And this happened to Kelly J. Keane, who's a feminist activist in the UK, although she wouldn't call herself a feminist, but she's doing the work of of campaigning for women's rights around this issue. She's also come to the States many times and she was at a swim meet, I believe with Leah Thomas in the pool. The reality is that we are not being asked to be tolerant of, I'm going to be very crude or blunt here, depending on your vocabulary, but of men in dresses or women in trousers. Now we all know, I grew up wearing trousers. I didn't have to fight very hard for that. Coco Chanel 80 years earlier did, but Mm. I didn't have to. But Uh men, obviously, they're on the other side of that struggle. If a man is wearing a dress, people will look, they'll ask questions, or today they'll just assume he's transitioning or something. Why should society have that task thrown at them as a nicety? Uh Is it mean for anyone to say, well, Leah Thomas is a man? If my psychological well-being is dependent upon your telling me I make the best pumpkin bread in the world, it seems that we've got an ethical situation also as to how we embrace difference and yeah. how we expect these quote-unquote persecuted minorities, which we both know they're not <laughs> persecuted minorities. They even tr- they even play around with the numbers about violence and murder rates. I saw that a few years ago with the FBI and I did the number crunching and I got some Uh statisticians to help me because I'm not a statistician, but we were able to figure out that the number one group of all violent related crimes, the number one group who's the subject of this are men, then women, then trans folks. So Uh we're dealing with all these myths flung in the air people reporting you'll see this all the time it's but they're oppressed they're murdered at higher rates they're beaten they're 
Well, when you want to talk about Brazilian transsexuals, we're talking largely about prostitutes. And if you want to talk about prostitutes around the world, they are highly victims of violence. That's right. just a fact. It can be right. in Delhi, it can be Rio, it can be New York or Seattle. Right. So uh, let me, um, I mean, I certainly agree with that. That last observation of yours, I think is really important because so much of the, uh, again, I'm going to talk about the American context, but I'm, this is relevant to other contexts as well. But so many of the, uh, of the legal and policy gains of the transgender movement here has depended on the framing of uh, transgender claims as claims of civil rights. And any claim of civil rights, uh, you know, implies that, that there's a minority that's politically powerless, socially marginalized. And there, you know, that's kind of where you have to throw these um, supposed facts about uh, victimization and violence and murder rates um, in order to prove that this is in fact a marginalized minority. Um, and yes, I think I think you're right that that a lot of what they're picking up on when they make claims about murder rates is not it, uh, the the trans identification of the person who was being murdered is a poor proxy for why that person was murdered. They were murdered usually for reasons quite other than than being trans. Although you know, it's certainly conceivable that in some of those cases, the fact that they misrepresented themselves to uh, to their um, clients probably had something to do with why their clients got mad and killed them. Not that that's a justification for murder, God forbid, but, um, but, but it's not irrelevant to the question, but, it's, but, but the, as you point out, the very fact that they are prostitutes already puts them in a much, much higher uh, risk category for violent victimization, independent of any issues of gender. Um, so that, and, and again, you, know, you see that kind of thinking all across the board when talking about trans issues. It's the same thing with all the medical uh, uh, research literature dealing with pediatric gender medicine, you know, um, when researchers claim that um, hormones reduce mental health problems, they never control for um, psychotherapy that the kids are going through anyway, and so they have no way to know if it's the psychotherapy that causes the improvement or the hormones, but they just tell people that it's the hormones and the media gobble it up. And then you get this whole narrative of, you know, hormones are medically necessary and life-saving, even though nobody has ever proven that or even strongly shown that in studies. But let me, I, I, I want to make three points um, kind of indirect, directly in response to the things that you, that you said. Um, the first is about social confirmation. And I think it's, it's important here to kind of break this down analytically a little bit, because you're right that you know, I also cannot think of another example of a psychopathology, um, a mental health condition in which the treatment involves a society's collective um, confirmation of the delusion. Um, but this, I think, is where, uh, you know, so gender ideology can enter the picture here and solve the problem, so to speak, because you can say, look, it's not society confirming that a trans, that a man is really a woman because he declares himself so, um, it's not society cooperating in the mental health delusion, it's society recognizing reality, which is that gender identity is really what makes a person female, right? So if you believe in gender ideology, that whole problem of, you know, th that you framed of, uh, is there any other condition in which society is required, that whole problem goes away. Right, you've kind of you've brought in gender ideology, kind of Deus ex machina, to solve that problem. Um, of course, if you do that, um, and this is the big caveat, if you do that, then um, the whole rationale for medical transition goes away. Right? If the only thing that makes somebody a, a woman is the fact that that person has a female gender identity, why on earth does that person need um, surgeries and hormones? Um, 
that's a question the feminists ask all the time. Or as I like to say, right. if I'm a clinician and you think that you're really a woman, my prescription, I'll just write down this on my prescription pad, mm -hmm. uh, go home, do all the housework and give 30% of your salary to a woman. Like <laughs> I've read enough of your articles to now assume that you know about John money and the, yes. the birth of this condition, we'll call it. Yeah. I think this condition is largely a, what uh, Michel de Sarteau might call a science fiction uh, mm. in the sense of, I believe that the diagnoses coming out post-war America, and we can talk about Christina Jorgensen, we can also talk about the fact that when this was going on and the the diagnosis given to the child of a botched circumcision was to, we'll make your boy a girl and just raise him as a girl. That mm -hmm. was the recommendation that was given in the case of the Reimar child. Mm -hmm. Now, David Reimar and his twin brother ended up having horrific ends to their lives. Mm -hmm. And it's quite understandable as to why, mm -hmm. aside from living a lie, aside from having your body mutilated first by an accident and second by interventions to which you never consented because you were both too young to consent. And in this atomic age of the 1950s, women were being brought out of the factories back into the home front. They were being told to get used to life in the kitchen and here's your blender and we've got all these new things. And sexism was a reality in the 1950s. And uh -huh. so was this fear of effeminate men. We know what happened to homosexuals in the 1950s and 60s. I have a good friend who was subject to shock therapy. The prognosis was, okay, we've diagnosed you with this and we're going to give you hormones. Where was that leap? Because that's a huge leap to me mm -hmm. that someone feels like a woman and talk therapy may or may not have been part of the process depending on the subject, but the medicalization of this psychopathology was to pump the individual full of estrogen and perhaps or not to commit to what is called today, and I have real problems with these terms, bottom surgery or whatnot, but mm -hmm. was to commit to a removal of the testes and the penis or an inversion of the penis to make a neo vagina. Mm -hmm. And that was it, game over. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with the way in which, I'll go back to Freud and French philosopher Luce Irigaré, who criticized Freud as making woman into a symptom. Indeed, now we've leapt from Freud, woman as symptom, to this postmodern era in which we're living where woman is the cure. And I find them two sides of the same coin. Okay, so um, regarding the Reamer case, uh, John Money, I mean, it, it's, you know, the failure of that experiment, and it was an experiment, of course, the failure of that experiment is actually what bred I think the trans movement in its current iteration with its claim about gender identity being immutable um, and you know, unalterable through social forces or uh, psychotherapy, anything like that. And, and, and therefore, as soon as it becomes evident, it has to be affirmed because there's no way it's ever gonna change, right? So, so uh, you know, paradoxically, money's um, failed experimentation um, gave the trans movement its, its uh, tr a tremendous amount of confidence in the innate and immutable nature of gender identity. Um, because otherwise, uh, uh, um, the Reamer kid would have been raised and felt like a female, right? If gender identity is mutable and amenable to social forces, then, then why not? Um, 
but let me let me kind of work through two of the things that you put on the table that I really want to address. Um, one is, you know, you said earlier, gender means stereotypes. I, I'm curious what you have in mind there, because I mean, so I, you know, I'm not a feminist, um, mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I, and I'm, I'm certainly not a queer a queer theorist. Um, <laughs> but you know, when I hear when I hear somebody say gender is stereotypes, I, I guess my first question to you is, what do you mean by gender? How are you defining gender? Well, I'm going through gender, even as Judith Butler describes in her work, as a social performance, as a, she defines it differently from one book to the next, I have to say, in Bodies That Matter, she shifts mm. greatly from gender trouble, but it's more performative in gender trouble. In Bodies That Matter, somehow it's now ingrained. That leap, I don't really buy what feminists say gender, we're, we're talking about the idea from the second sex when de Beauvoir yeah. says one is not born a woman, one becomes one. Paradoxically, the gender movement has leapt from that saying, well, I'm becoming one. And that's yeah. not what she meant. She was talking about socialization. She was talking right. about the social politicization also of gender, such right. that going back to my example, and, and we see this, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about this as well. Statistically, women aren't getting paid what they should, he says, because they are not asserting that they should be paid that. And there are sociological reasons for why we are afraid to ask for raises and you insist on yours. Mm -hmm. Now, the stereotype from that is that I'm supposed to like Laura Ashley uh, on Sundays, I dust the house with a feather duster and I'm giving you outdated stereotypes because a lot of the gender movement, the transgender movement has hitched its caboose onto these stereotypes. Now, when I say gender, I'm talking about the representation of what a woman is or should be. So I don't go to drag shows and see a woman wearing the latest in Kmart jogging wear with Crocs. I'm not right. seeing that. And once in a while, you'll get a ballsy transvestite on stage. And I'm thinking of the 90s in New York, who yeah. will put on a pantsuit and pull it off quite well. Right. But that's a performance. I right. don't see that in the transgender movement today. It's about, it's this very reduced notion of what woman is to some feminists say pornographized images of women. Yes, yeah. I see that a lot. The reduction of woman as being very sentimental and feeling. So you get in a Twitter debate and suddenly the hurt feels come out the, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I've been off crying and it's like, wait a sec, are we having an intellectual debate here? Or are we going to play more into the tropes of being a weepy woman. I have a problem with the fact that all that gender has been advanced through this movement has been nothing but the same. I'll give you an example as well. As an anthropologist, I'm not seeing someone coming off the operating table saying, oh, I'm now Golda Meir, or I'm yeah. now Indira Gandhi. <laughs> right. You're seeing very cultural specific impressions of women done by men who claim to be women. I mean, I'm not a mean person either, Leor. I mean, if I yeah. know someone is coming to my dinner party and they just stopped drinking because they had a severe alcohol problem, I will in all likelihood not even open wine at the table that evening, right. even right. if my right. other six guests drink. Like I'm a sensitive person, you know? Right. But in terms of my having to go along with someone's self-image, their need to assert their mirror onto me, I now draw the line. And a lot of that came from that discussion with Julia Long, and a lot of it came from years of watching on social media and my own experiences with people I know who uh, identify as transgender individuals who, when they transition, 
our relationship was always about, do I look like a woman enough? And I didn't mm -hmm. want to have a friendship with someone where I became their mirror. I sort of wanted right. to talk about goldfish or the sky <laughs> or the clouds, you know? I didn't right. want to talk about that. And it's to me, and I'm sure it's part of the pathology in terms of this, what some have called a hyper-narcissism. It's all about me, or right. as Joan Rivers says, enough about me, let's talk about what you think about me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a movement that's fraught with many other types of psychological issues that have gone to the wayside or have been consciously pushed to the wayside. And you know this about autism within the girl, the girl demographic. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And and I think, you know, anybody who's kind of looking at this, especially the way in which it manifests among teenagers um, with objective eyes, that's not kind of an ideologue, um, can see that obviously this trans stuff is wrapped up in lots of other mental pathologies and social behaviors that are really new. Um, most notably, of course, social media. And you know, there's a reason why the vast majority of kids nowadays identifying as trans are female. It's because girls are affected by social media in ways that are different and more profound than boys. We know that. Um, you know, the, 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 the status jockeying, the spreading of rumors, the, the concern for status, um, all those kinds of things um, manifest themselves in, in teenage girls in different ways than they do in boys. You know, when, when boys, when we want to um, confront one another, we do it one-on-one -on -one and we beat each other up. Um, when girls want to bully each other, they kind of psychologically tease and gang up and through social media and things like that, right? So all of these kind of underlying uh, trends and behavior that, that where you do see average differences, and I'll, I'll get back to my, the, uh, my uh, question to you about gender in just a second, but all of these underlying trends of psychological behavior, I mean, I'm always struck by the degree of naivete of, of uh, kind of trans activists, especially those who support the transitioning of kids their utter naivete about, about um, adolescent psychology. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's astonishing to me. But let, let me get back to the point about gender and service. And the reason I ask you is because, you know, let's, let's define gender broadly as dealing with um, psychological traits and behaviors, okay? As opposed to just kind of raw facts about one's anatomical biological existence. Um, you know, I think we know enough about human beings to know that there are average differences, right? You can find, you can, uh, between men and women, right? That men are more aggressive. That probably has a lot to do with our levels of testosterone, which are much, much higher, especially after puberty. Um, um, and women tend to, uh, women tend to be more contextual in their thinking. Um, I think it's no accident that if you look at kind of who's supporting trans activism on the ground, on the ground, I mean, I don't mean the people funding it or running it behind the scenes. Um, you see an overwhelming disproportion of women, especially kind of white liberal women um, for whom this all comes down to just kindness, kindness versus cruelty. Um, you don't see the same thing among men, even men who support the trans issue, you don't see the same thing. Um, so there are, there are distributions of behaviors and psychological dispositions between men and women. Um, you know, you can call that personality, um, you can call that character. Um, but, you know, I'm struck, for example, that uh, the most vicious of trans activists, in my experience, are the males who transition to female or who present themselves as female, which in a paradoxical way confirms that um, men are more manly, they're more assertive. Um, and, and the fact that they transition or want to present themselves as female doesn't negate that for a second. They're still a lot more assertive. They're more combative. They're more willing to confront aggressively people who disagree with them. 
Um, whereas trans men, meaning biological females, uh, again, these are observations. I, don't, I can't confirm this with any study, so I may be wrong, but you know, this is just my own observations. Um, trans men, meaning biological females, when they uh, do activism, when they confront their critics, it's always through kind of sharing of posts and ganging up with other trans men and, you know, look at what this guy said, isn't that ridiculous and things like that, right? So even, I, I would say the behavior of adult transgender people sometimes confirms the very beliefs that they're trying to, um, to, to destroy about the relative distribution of traits among biological males and females. But, you know, I would say that we have to be careful when we're talking about stereotypes, right? When we say something like gender means stereotypes, I don't, I'm not imputing any of what I'm going to say to you, but um, there are what you might call statistical stereotypes, meaning average patterns of behavior that most men and most women exhibit um, differentially from one another. And that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. Of course, there are exceptions, but the exceptions are exceptions that prove the rule. Um, and then there are also normative stereotypes, which is how someone should act, right? So there's a difference between saying that most men are aggressive and saying that men should be aggressive in order to qualify as men, right? Those are two very different statements. So that's one point that I wanted to make is that there are average distributions of traits and behaviors and that these matter to our lives. And there, I don't think there's anything we can do about it. We can tinker it at the margins, but, but there, I think these differences among men and women are always going to exist in averages. And it's important to recognize that um, and, and to try to deal with that, right? The, the fact that men are, aggression, are, are more naturally aggressive and violent doesn't mean that we should allow men more leeway to commit violence than women. It just means that men need to be civilized more than women do. Um, so that's one point. The second, you know, I'm, I, on the one hand, I'm glad to see that a lot of feminists and gay rights activists are recognizing the, the dangers inherent in the redefinition of sex and gender and pushing back against it. I, I'm less inspired by those who claim, and I don't think all of, all of feminists and gay rights activists claim this, but I'm less inspired when I hear things like trans activism is against feminism or is antithetical to gay rights. That just strikes me as wrong. Um, there are ways, of course, in which both feminism and gay rights advocacy have um, kind of created the conditions for the trans movement to come into existence. And I think to deny that is not only intellectually wrong, but I think it's also counterproductive. So just to give you an example, even if you take the most moderate form of, or one of the most moderate forms of feminism, liberal feminism, I mean, um, I'm referring, for example, to the, you know, the legal thinking of somebody like uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? M very mainstream liberal feminism. You know, her entire career was built on the argument that um, our our bodies' natural reproductive capacities should have absolutely nothing to do with our social status, nothing whatsoever. Um, and that should be reflected in social norms, in the laws, in everything. You know, there's a very short step from that argument to the, to the argument that our body's natural anatomy and reproductive capacities shouldn't determine anything about us, including how we identify. Obviously, it's a leap. Obviously, that's not what Gator, Bader Ginsburg herself had in mind, but it's a very short step. Um, so, you know, we, we have to try to understand how we have to try to figure out a way to, to strike a, a healthy middle ground between, you know, the handmaid's tale on the one hand, the kind of ultra repressive, uh, you know, sexual mores of yesteryear, and, and this kind of nihilistic understanding of the human person being advanced nowadays under the trans umbrella. There has to be some middle ground, but it's important to recognize how 
both feminism and gay rights, or, or in the case of gay rights, for example, um, you know, the argument was that uh, sex and sexuality should have nothing to do with reproduction on a normative basis. Um, and, and that too, I think, uh, paves the way to, to the transgender movement. It's obviously not synonymous with, with uh, gender self-identification, and there's obviously a leap there. Um, but, to, but to think that, that gay rights has nothing to do with the birth of the trans movement, I think, is just insane. So, you know, I, I, think, I, I think, look, let, let, me, let me summarize what I'm saying with this observation. I have seen among people on the right, I have seen more sympathy over the last couple of years uh, towards gender critical feminism and gay rights than I have ever seen. Um, and that's good and understandable. But I would also like to see sympathy and understanding from the opposite direction. I would like to see feminists and gay rights activists saying things like, hey, you know what? Maybe the relentless attack on the nuclear family was a little bit overblown. Maybe we, maybe we failed to see something here. Maybe we failed to understand that, the, that, that, that men and women are different and should be taught to be different. And, um, and that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, and, and maybe we should be taught to even to think that, you know, heterosexuality is not some, you know, invention of an oppressive culture, that this is the natural condition of humankind. And yes, there are exceptions to the rule. You know, I recently heard uh, Douglas Murray say that, you know, I'm gay and, um, and being, being gay is neither good nor bad. It's just something that exists. It just is. Um, but for, for many years, there were a lot of gay rights activists who, who were not saying that, right? Who were saying, no, being gay is good. Well, if being gay is good, there's, you know, there's not a, lot, a big leap from there to, to kind of the whole world of gender self-identification, liberating oneself from the shackles of one's biology and, and anatomical functions. So again, we have, to, we have to find that middle ground between the repressive you know, world of very rigid sexual and gender norms on the one hand, and the world of, of total unfettered sexual self-expressionism of the gender identity movement on the other hand. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I agree with the points you've made. I would add to it that in the 90s, there was that born this way versus choice within the gay movement. Mm, and there were scientists mm. trying to find the gay gene. Remember that right, around 1994, right, right. five, mm -hmm. six? And then you have the other issue that can't be omitted here. Gay rights in the era of AIDS took a new form. Mm. And we were living a community of loss, tragedies, mm -hmm. men losing their flats because their lovers had died in the West mm -hmm. Village. This happened all the time. I got involved mm. with ACT UP over these issues. Mm. The Ironically, what we're seeing with the transitioning of children and parents like Susie Green, the mm. CEO of mm -hmm. Mermaids, Mermaids yeah. flew her son to Thailand to have him yeah. castrated <sighs> and to the States to get treatment in Boston. And we can talk about Boston because there are <laughs> hubs where the Pritzkers have put their money. I have questions about the way in which the gay rights movement adhered so vehemently to the tragedy of AIDS, didn't 
let go of it when it was time to mm -hmm. let go of it moved on quickly to gay to gay marriage mm -hmm. but there was a hole left in these ngos and they filled it with the tea and they filled right. it with the tea because yeah. one of the problems and i do think there needs to be eventually some kind of oversight ngo or a a kind of board that looks at ngos mandates because mm -hmm. I saw this in Haiti working in child trafficking. I'm very critical of what Minister has done there and look what's happening in Haiti today. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, we've created through US intervention in that country from the 1950s onward, a banana republic uh, mm -hmm. and poverty. That country was very wealthy in the 50s. It is the poorest country in the hemisphere, I believe, along with Bolivia. And mm. there are reasons for this. NGOs, there are more NGOs, there are something like over 10,000 NGOs on the mm. island of Haiti. Now that's <laughs> insane. It's half yeah. the island actually. So you've got this mandate to go in and do X, Y, Z, but when that's not accomplished, or rather as one of my colleagues from the tier fund said to me, we just move the furniture around. We keep the deck <laughs> chairs moving so that yeah. the funders can come in and the money keeps right. fl fl flooding in. Right. And when I was doing research for gay men's health crisis in the mid nineties, mm -hmm. they were considering renaming themselves. They started just going by GMHC because the demographic of AIDS around 1994 shifted from being mostly gay men to being a lot of Hispanic, heterosexual women, men, African-American mm -hmm. mm -hmm. men and women. And there was a conflict with the name of this organization, who are our clients. And that's also when the client model came in, patient went out the door, client came in. And we see that in universities. Mm -hmm. You can't say students, yep. now they're clients. And the clientelism of the NGO sector, I believe has played a role in this. And I would add that going back to identity and gender here, when you want to know what gender is, I'll tell you what gender is. It's this. How many men have been told, and gay men's organizations have told their affiliates, well, now you have to suck a male clitoris. No, they're mm. not being told that. Women are. You're not seeing mm. men being called testicle havers or no. prostate havers. This is a very gendered war against women. In fact, I'd say the trans lobby does itself in. It makes own goals of affirmations about what the feminists are saying, because it's women who are expected to, I wrote a piece about this, women are being expected to organize men's sock drawer. Why are women being asked to deal with Leah Thomas and not the men's swim team? Okay, so, so here's maybe where there's a little bit of daylight between us, um, and not too much, um, because I am actually sympathetic to the critique that you know the trans ideology is, has a very strong misogynistic component to it. I think that's, you can see that in kind of the displays of autogynophiliac men and how they think femininity is and should be perceived and um, these kind of grotesque displays of, of, of femininity and things like that. I think it's hard to ignore that there's, a, there's an element of misogyny in this movement. Um, I think to the extent that it works to the detriment of women more than men, which I obviously agree with, I think it's hard to deny that on so many levels. But I would add one more and very important level is that the vast majority of teenagers who are going through these things and want to get medicalized are girls. Um, so, so that's another way in which this has a, a negative effect on women much, much more than men. But um, I think that that's the result rather than the, than the intent of uh, the gender identity movement. And what I mean by that is you know, uh, uh, trans men can play on men's teams, but nobody would care. They wouldn't do, they wouldn't get, get anywhere. Um, tra trans men can serve in men's prisons, but nobody cares because they wouldn't be able 
to beat anybody up, right? They would be at a physical disadvantage. So it's not like these, uh, or, you know, yeah, okay. I mean, so I, you know, I've seen the, the phrase uterus havers. I actually have seen phrases of penis havers and things like that. I just think most men just look at that and kind of shrug it off, but they shrug it off because of the wider context, which is that these things don't affect men as much as they affect women and men can stick up for themselves and they don't really, they don't see why this, why this matters to them personally. Whereas for women, the effects are a lot more, more palpable and tangible in their lives, uh, you know, uh, public bathrooms, uh, showers, things like that, right? Um, if, if, if men in a men's shower room in, in a, a men's locker room in a gym saw a trans man with a vagina walking around naked, most of them would probably just stare or, or not even, they would just kind of ignore it. Um, whereas for women, you know, you can assume that a, a, a non-insignificant portion of the women in that locker room have probably experienced some kind of sexual um, assault in their lives. So for them to see a, a, a naked male body is, is distressing to say the least. So yeah, it, it obviously redounds to the detriment of women much more than men, but I don't think that that's a design of the system. I think that it's just one of its unfortunate consequences. And I don't mean to minimize the consequence, but I do think it's important to recognize that, that um, there is a symmetry here. It's just that on the other side, the effects are just not that important. Most men don't care about them. Well, yes and no, I'd say, do you know what Man Friday is? No, I don't. Well, Man Friday was a group of women who around 2017-18, this was so funny, uh, they got together, some would wear mustaches and whatnot, but they show up at men's swimming hours at mm -hmm. local gyms around London, and then it spread around the country, and they'd show up and they'd swim in the men's swimming hour. And the men did not like it at all not mm. at all and it was phenomenal to watch they made videos uh, <laughs> i mean it was funny and they they disbanded and i wish they would keep doing it because it was great comedy in a way for us because <laughs> we needed it but i would say but did they did they not like it because well just to clarify they didn't like it because they were clogging up lanes that were designated for men because if if, if that if that's true then there's a zero sum game here right that, no that... no the men wanted their privacy they wanted men's time they wanted the okay, men's so cave. so it was about privacy and uh, yeah you know, a male only a, space or something it like was that. about a male only space them wanting uh -huh, to go uh -huh. and not see women's breasts and bras and yep. curves that was an interesting mini revolution happening there and <laughs> at the same time. You mentioned women who've been survivors of rape, etc. I actually dislike that kind of rationale that even feminists advance, because mm. I think one of the things I've taught my daughter is that no is a complete sentence. And I mm. think that I shouldn't have to be raped to have the right to say that sentence, if you know right. what I mean. All yeah. women, like I remember being 12 years old. I grew up in New Orleans from the age of 10, walking to the bus and I was 12 years old and there was a garbage truck going by and a man whistled at me and said something that I couldn't quite hear, but mm -hmm. it was a likely a sexual comment later as happened more and more as I grew up. Yeah. And yeah. growing up as a female in any society is no picnic at a certain age when you are no longer reading Anne of Green Gables I'm using stereotypes here, but suddenly <laughs> you're being catcalled by yeah. some dude on the street you've never seen. Yeah, for now, sure, for sure. You know, and men might say, oh, I like, it. of course you'd like it because the woman who's just catcalled you is not going to rape you. Not that I think every man who catcalls me is, but this is the unfortunate equation of society. Who is raped and who rapes? I, I, you're 100% right about that. And, and I just to 
clarify what I meant. I, I did not mean that that women's concerns about having a naked male in the in the locker room matters only if they were they experienced sexual assault. I, I didn't certainly didn't mean mean that. Um, no, no, I didn't assume you did. I was just clarifying yeah, no, no. because what you <laughs> said is something that feminists often say, yes, and I'm like, yeah. wait, I don't want to go there. Right, and and no, I I think I uh, you've actually just taught me something very very important, which is that um, we shouldn't we shouldn't reach for rationales regarding rape and past history of sexual abuse when a perfectly more kind of reasonable explanation will do, which is that some women feel uncomfortable in the presence of a, of a naked male. Um, and, and, you know, and that's, that's fine. We should, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to explain further why that makes them uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, there's also, you know, we have to take into account, of course, concerns about modesty, not just by religious people, which, you know, obviously their concerns about modesty are also important and matter and are protected uh, under our laws and things like that. But, um, but, but even a non-religious, even a secular person's concerns about modesty. You know, there are plenty of teenage girls and, and young women and teenage boys and young men who, who um, just feel like, feel, experience shame when, when in, the, in the vicinity, either they're naked in the vicinity of the other sex or vice versa. And that should, that should be enough too. You know, one of the things that really struck me when reading through a lot of these court cases on Title IX regarding bathrooms and schools is the extent to which judges, um, and I can, I can explain why they do this, but um, judges have basically said, look, if you can't produce hard evidence of a student who was really traumatized by seeing the naked body of another student or by having the student of another sex seeing their own body in a state of nudity, if you can't prove that, if you can't provide that level of evidence, I'm going to totally dismiss any concerns about privacy as being just um, a rationale for bigotry. And in fact, uh, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals said that the argument about, about privacy is, and I quote, based on sheer conjecture and abstraction. I mean, that's, that's a, a really remarkable statement that, that there's absolutely no reason ever to take into consideration the concerns of privacy of teenagers um, unless there is hard evidence of, of severe trauma that just strikes me as absolutely insane. Well, the caveat also to this issue of, of rape always being on the table, it's not that a woman or a girl has to have been raped to mm. have boundaries, it's that mm. we are always conscious of it. I was yeah. conscious of it it's as a, a girl, as a, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I, there were times I'd get out of the train in Brooklyn and I had to take out my headphones to walk on the street because I wanted mm. to hear footsteps behind me. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. men don't have to do that. Yes, you can be mugged at higher rates and you are at higher rates than are we, mm -hmm. but it's very implausible, statistically speaking, that right. you are going to be anything more than mugged. Right. And it is statistically a fact that we will not only be right. subject to that. That's and right. that's why I think it's really important that this movement, I'm floored, I'm going to go to a document, I'm responding to something in writing this week. And I don't know if you saw this, this was in the Nature last week, it's called to set transgender policy, look to the evidence. By Paisley Curl, I commented on that on, uh, on Twitter and, and tried to tag him. I think he untagged himself because it was embarrassing for him that his, his citations of the studies are totally wrong there. It's a piece yeah. published by one of the most important science journals yeah. in the world yeah. that is full of what the British would say, it's bollocks. There yeah. was nothing that Current wrote that was correct at all. 
and the goalpost shifting or the, you know, what did you say? The lily pad leaping? The lily hopping, it, yeah. Lily hopping everywhere. One has to wonder, is nature being funded by big pharma? Is nature being funded by some lobby? We see this in the States with the proliferation of gender clinics for kids. Enter Boston hospitals. Mm -hmm. So many of them have catered to this clientele. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have mm -hmm. to put that in quoting marks because I've been working on this subject for years. I got to know Stephanie Davis Arai of Transgender Trend when she was just starting out. And mm. I was dealing, when I was in Brighton, I dealt with Brighton Hove. They had a packet which included the gingerbread person written by a person who has also done the sexuality tree, where mm -hmm. in his sexuality tree, one of the types of sexuality is rape. Mm. Okay, you can look that up after. It's fascinating to see that a council like Brighton Hove has adopted a PDF without having investigated a thing about the maker of the PDF. Yeah. And, and gingerbread is not just Mr. Potato Head. We're not right. Mr. Potato Head. But let's get back to also the fact that girls are transitioning now at higher rates than boys. Mm -hmm. And of the two demographics, male and female, more and more the case is that males are not undergoing any kind of surgical processes the females are. So this you mean as, right as back... minors, you mean as minors? Yes, yes. And as as now as adults as well, by the way, when you mm. start to look at the statistics of who is getting what is again, this term bottom surgery, I hate it, because mm. it, it sanitizes what's really going on here in top right. surgery. We're talking about the mutilation of healthy tissue of women on Twitter, just the other day, a woman, oh my God, it was yesterday, I believe she wrote about how she remembers just last year, they removed her breasts, they were right next to her. She could see them and she's like, what were my doctors thinking? Like mm. she's already a detransitioner one year yeah. later, uh, yeah. less than a year. And it's really daunting to see how the transgender lobby has refused to hear the voices of detransitioners. They tried to make it out as a minor category, but then, you know, I just contacted Paul McHugh today. Mm. And I'm trying to talk to him as well. He was part of the decision-making process in 1979 that closed the yeah. John Hopkins, Hopkins uh, clinic. Yeah. yeah. Now there was a reason for it. And the reason was they were not showing positive results for these interventions. You start right. to look at the science and the data. Well, go back to the Tavistock and the judge ruled against what the Tavistock was doing effectively. I'm cliff noting it here, but <laughs> basically the reason, one of the major reasons for this, this is shocking to me. They did no follow-up studies, no yeah. follow-up data, nothing. Right. So we're seeing more these transitioners coming out of the woodwork day by day. And it's becoming a huge demographic. Uh, how many more this week and next week now we're not also seeing data to show that there's any kind of somatic basis for what is called gender dysphoria mm -hmm. but the the you know does the answer to this is somehow take these hormones get these surgeries if you wish or not that's very troubling that we have a medical procedure that was born in the post-war era the height of sexism in the US, because the 1950s was a particularly repressive era, the 1960s didn't come out of nowhere, right? Yeah. And this was the result, the antidote to feeling like you are in the wrong body is to make you the other body. Like, 
No. <laughs> okay, so so there's a few things here. I, I think first, I think it is important to recognize that there are some people who do experience this agonizing um, distress over being uh, uh, associated with their bodies. It's a visceral experience, from what I've read. It's a visceral experience, and it's it's a it's a aversion or a rejection of one's body and its parts and processes. It's not a visceral rejection of gender norms. That's a really important point that that some people don't understand is that people who actually have severe gender dysphoria, um, it's the body itself that gives them that experience. And that's why they want to change it. It's not society's understanding of their body. So that's a really important distinction. And we also, you know, we know that for a lot of these people, who I shouldn't say, it's, using the word a lot of these people can be misleading because it's a tiny, tiny number of people. Um, some of them report that their feelings began in childhood or in adolescence. So you know, there, I think it's important to recognize that there is a dilemma here. And that dilemma is that there's a severe psychological condition and that some people do experience an improvement in their quality of life after they've so-called transitioned as adults or whatever. Um, uh, but but the, the obvious difficulty is, can we pick out the kid, the true trans kids, right, from among all the other kids um, who, who experienced distress over their bodies? And of course, we can't. There are no uh, diagnostic tools that allow us to do that. Um, you know, some people argue there's no such thing as a trans kid. No kid is born in the wrong body. Fine. You know, I, I can subscribe to all those arguments, but I could still argue, right? And this to go back to the original point that I made about there being two different discussions here. The philosophical discussion is anybody born in the wrong body, and the um, medical discussion of what is the best way to manage gender dysphoria. You know, I can agree that no kid is born in the wrong body and still also think that if, if we, by an act of magic, um, had the ability, the uncanny ability to peer into a person's soul and know that they are destined to have severe gender dysphoria for the rest of their lives, I'm, I'm open to the idea that it could be beneficial for them to, to do puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and even surgeries. Um, but, but our ability to know that is zero. Um, and I don't see that ever changing, or at least anytime soon. So, so for that, you know, so so effectively, my position on pediatric gender medicine is the same as those who say, as take those who take the more metaphysical position, say nobody's born in the wrong body. We we arrive at the same result. So, but but look, I mean, um, yes, uh, you know, these these procedures are are they shock the consciousness, right? Um, mm -hmm, and or the conscience, I should say, they shock the conscience of, of anybody who's not an ideologue. And, and you know, uh, those of us who have been observing this from the side are kind of uh, screaming, where's the evidence? Show me the evidence, you know? And we go over the studies that the activists cite. And, and uh, when you look at, kind of in detail at what these studies say and what they don't say and what the authors themselves say, there's nothing there. Um, you know, the, the, so far there have been a, um, a number of what's known as a systematic review of evidence, which is a method of evidence review that's designed to prevent cherry picking of studies in order to produce a desired result. So Sweden did one of these, uh, Finland did one of these, the UK did two of them, one for puberty blockers and one for cross-sex hormones. Um, and all three countries came to the same conclusion that there is no evidence that the benefits of these interventions, the mental health benefits of these interventions outweigh the risks, none. That doesn't mean that one day there won't be evidence, but at, at present, we have no such evidence. If you recall in 2000, there was the infamous, infamous case of Dr. Robert Smith in Scotland, mm. who was amputating people 
who believe themselves to have what is called BDD, body dysmorphic disorder. And Mm -hmm. that was made quickly illegal because medical ethics boards said no to this. Now, if we just look at the, I'm going to be vulgar here, but the lobbing off of a limb or genitals, I'd say the latter is the crueler (laughs) because one can somehow get around disruption in their mental thought thinking, oh, what was I thinking? I had my left arm taken off. Mm -hmm. They'll live with that. They can still have a happy, healthy life. When you start to remove intimate organs, which means that your reproductive life is gone, that your ability to have healthy sexual relations, including orgasm, is removed, Mm -hmm. then, Mm -hmm. whoa, we're we're really getting into categories of going back to the Ramar case. This child was left not only without a penis, but then all other sensitive parts of his body were removed and made into something else. There's little recognition by the transgender lobby to say some of these surgeries have done harm because the Mm. detransitioners have organized. There are now many groups of them around the world. You see them on social media as well. There are films Mm -hmm. made by them and about them. Mm-hmm, and they speak, mm-hmm. they speak very clearly about what they've been through. Some of them, in fact, are not even children. It wasn't like they started this project when they were 13. They feel like they were not given the options of talk therapy, that they were quickly, right. and you mentioned her in your, oh my God, Diane Ehrenzeft. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have seen so much by this woman. I just throw up my hands that infamous talk where she says that if a child pulls off her onesie and she wants to wear a blue onesie, then she must be a boy. And if a girl pulling out her barrettes and I'm thinking, oh, MFG, that's all I can think. Yeah. Because this is incredibly reckless. Anyone who has a child, I mean, you don't have to be Maria Montessori for goodness sake, but you know that children go through phases. So whenever this kicks off on social media, every so often, maybe every few years, I'll post a picture that I took in a spice jet airplane when my child was around one. All the pilots and co-pilots were all women that day. (laughs) And they loved my daughter and took a picture. We were going from Delhi to somewhere else in India. And I say, well, my daughter actually wanted to fly. So I'm not going to let the whole airplane oppress her desire to fly at the age of one like is that where we're going with this this is so insidious and we know that even children in their teens i mean come on if i were allowed to make the choices that i wanted there were things i wanted to do that were really nuts i was in the army in my teens Mm. i jumped out of an airplane many times at fort benning georgia if you told Mm -hmm. me now to do that i'd be like no way You know, there are things that you do when you're young that you just won't do when you're older. And the reason is, is that our cerebral cortex is not completely developed. Our brains, it depends on what studies you read, are not fully developed until 26, 28, roughly. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, You know, I'm struck. uh, You you mentioned Diane Ehrensaft. I recommend to your listeners who who have the time, but more importantly, the the masochistic urge to do this to themselves, um, to read her book, Gender, um, The Gender Creative Child. Um, It is, I'm not kidding. It it is one of the most remarkable uh, uh, illustrations of the, just the total superficiality of of the gender, of the trans um, uh, movement. Um, This is a woman who is incapable of having a deep thought incapable. Um, and what's interesting, and you know, another kind of very revealing aspect of this book, um, and this is true of kind of the, the broader way in which the trans movement tries to kind of instantiate its ideology in schools, 
is just the, the, the total aversion to scientific language, to precise language, and um, the substitution of that language uh, with um, kind of glittery, um, child-friendly um, metaphors and things like that. So throughout the book, she never really gives a definition of gender. She just um, compares it to, you know, different types of cars and, and uh, um, um, uh, mythological figures and shapes and colors and sizes and appliances. And it's just a, a, a mind-bogglingly dumb book. But, but it does, I think, provide a very interesting glimpse into the mind of somebody who, who thinks this way. Um, so for example, just to give you two quick examples, um, at one point in the book, you know, we know now that, that um, uh, kids with um, autism are very, very vulnerable um, to the to transgender ideology because it gives them a narrative for why they feel socially isolated and awkward. Um, I think in the, Tavist the review of the Tavistock Clinic in the UK, they found that um, up to a third of the girls who showed up there were, um, uh, had autism or other neuro, um, neuroatypical conditions, a third. I mean, that's very, very, that, that's a red flag right there, right? So Erin Saft in her book, Erin Saft says, um, I kid you not, she says, one day we might learn to think of gender transition as a cure for autism, a cure. Um, and there's zero citations that she gives for that claim, zero. Um, but another, another claim that she makes, because you just um, brought this up, um, if I remember correctly, and your listeners might want to fact check me, but if I remember correctly, you know, uh, Aaron big argument is this, I know, uh, is that uh, people like her have the ability to pick out the true trans kids, right? Um, and she, she uses this test of if a kid is insistent, persistent, and consistent in his or her gender self um, assertions, um, then we can know that this kid is a true trans kid and we can start the transition process very, very early, even as young as two years old. Um, as opposed to kids who say, I want to be a boys who say, I want to be a girl or girls who say, I want to be a boy. According to Aronsoft, uh, statements of I want um, uh, show that this is not a true trans kid. And what's interesting is that throughout the book, she constantly confuses I am with I want statements. She can't even keep her own story straight. This comes up over and over and over when she, when she gives an example of a kid who by, by her own definition is true trans and she gives uh, examples of what that uh, kid has said in therapy. Um, she uses I wish or I want type statements. And the other thing that I, that I remember from the book is that she discusses um, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelo, Angelina Jolie's um, a daughter Sh uh, Shiloh who came out as a boy and now has since kind of reverted back to being a girl to Shiloh. And if I remember correctly, Aronsoff gives Shiloh as an example of a true trans kid. So, you know, I mean, it just shows that, that these people are, are incapable of thinking um, uh, analytically and, and, and profoundly on the subject they write on. And their ideas do a tremendous amount of harm. And Aronsoff was behind uh, one of the major forces, so I, so I am told, um, behind the closure of um, uh, the, the attack on Dr. Kenneth Zucker at the University of Toronto, because he practiced what's known as watchful waiting, meaning he didn't immediately affirm a child as their uh, gender self-identification the moment they, they made it. Um, so, you know, these activists are, are, are behind kind of the, the corruption of, of medicine um, uh, in ways that are just really distressing. But again, you know, for, for those readers of yours who have the masochistic urge, um, I recommend reading through the gender creative child, if only to get a glimpse of, of what kind of, of mind is behind the, this, this phenomenon.
I've read that book as well, and mm. I am flipped out constantly by what passes as scientific knowledge around mm. this subject. There are advocates within other types of medicine who can get very rough around the edges of when certain kinds of solutions are proposed. As I learned after my first article on this subject came out in 2013, mm -hmm. I had received loads of death threats. It was quite mm. awful for me. I had to leave the UK for a few months. Mm. Death and rape threats, including to my then mm. six-month-old daughter, my editor yes. and his daughter. It was awful. I went to a cafe one day and I was like sort of recovering from it all. My daughter was taking a nap and there was a woman at the next table who was reading a psychology book. We started chatting. I told her what I had just gone through and she says, that's fascinating because I work on something where we've had similar reactions. And I mm. said, oh, do tell. She works on I'm going to get hell now for what I'm about to say, but she works on, no, I'm afraid to, because I wrote another piece about this and it was pulled within four hours, but, um, because my editors were threatened again, but she works on chronic fatigue syndrome. Now she works mm. on, uh, the issue of the socialized groups around that. Not that chronic fatigue syndrome does not exist. No one's saying that folks, but she works around the fact that when they were working on CBT and GET therapies, and she mentioned a clinician there in the city. She talked about the death threats that she and her team received and this clinician mm -hmm. as well. And he was the head of the Royal College of Psychiatry. He has still to this day to get his mail x-rayed and because the death and bomb threats were regular and it was the vitriol around how dare they not confirm what we feel? How dare they say we should right. do this, but do that? And it's very similar with what's happened in the trans lobby. The idea that, and you point out this in one of your articles, that when concessions were made about bathrooms, for instance, and this is what the feminists really pick up on, wait, you've been given a third option. And mm -hmm. no, that wasn't enough. You couldn't take the separate toilet. You had to go and push to be in the men's or the women's locker room or toilets. Mm -hmm. And that set off something with the feminists saying, this is about pushing our boundaries. They don't want to just have their private space. They want to invade ours. They don't want to be on and create their own sports teams. They want to be in ours. And it's hard to disagree with that because I've seen this time and time again over the past decade, talking with people, online debates, where what is desired and what is commanded here is absolute capitulation. It's not about accommodating this group. It's about ceding women's spaces to this group where again, men are not being asked to. Mm. Cancer research at UK does not refer to men as testicle havers. And mm -hmm. it's a ritual with women to be dehumanized in public and, and even private businesses in a way that makes it very clear this is about eroding women's boundaries and girls' boundaries for that matter. On the show, I've also had one of the runners from Connecticut who lost out on mm, one trick after yeah. the next because mm -hmm. boys showed up and won the meets and she lost yeah. scholarships because of this. This isn't just about, I'm not going to be the winner. It's about how am I going to pay for college now? Yeah, no, I, so so I, I agree with, with almost all of that. I think, again, I just want to reiterate that um, I think, I think I'm just a, a, a little bit uncomfortable with the phrasing of this is about erasing women's rights. I think that it's a consequence of this movement that it erases, um, uh, that, that it kind of uniquely 
um, erases women's rights and, and privacy concerns and things like that. But I don't think that that's the point of the movement. I think uh, the, the reason why it seems to be that way is because, again, the impact on men is much less tangible than on women. So it seems like, again, from a kind of a disparities perspective, as opposed to a discrimination, discriminatory intent perspective, it seems like it's targeting women uniquely. But that seems to be more the effect than the than the, the the intent. Now, some some of your listeners may say, okay, so that you know, potato, potato. It's a distinction without a difference. Who cares? The, all of the, at the end of the day, that's what it does. And fine, I'm 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 sympathetic to that. But where where I I, I want to caution here is that that way of phrasing it, that way of framing it, that this is a, a deliberate assault on women and women's rights is part of, I think, a broader narrative of feminism that says, if we only were all more feminist, none of this would be happening. And, and I think that that's half true um, because I think that feminism does have some important insights that can inform how to push back reasonably and intellig intelligently against this stuff. But I think that also kind of quietly tried, tries to conceal, to hide um, feminism's real culpability in producing this movement. Um, and, you know, I can also, if you want, I mean, this might be a topic for another conversation, but I'm happy to walk through kind of the legal history of how in the United States, the trans movement's uh, accomplishments have grown out of the women's movement, uh, women's legal movement. Um, you would not have the trans movement today if not for um, feminists and the, the legal arguments that they were making in courts and in the law reviews and in the public sphere. Um, so, yeah, so I agree with you that that is the, the consequence of this movement, but I'm, I'm just a little bit uncomfortable with saying that that's the intent. You know why I say that? A lot of trans individuals say they're ruining it for us. I've gone through hell to get surgery, to live my life, and these idiots, I mean, half of them, most of them now, today, they say most of them aren't even transgender. This yeah. has become a social fad. Right. And I can't disagree with them when they say stuff like this. So when I'm saying the trans movement, I'm not talking about those folks. I'm talking who want to just live their lives and get on with their lives. I'm talking about the lobby that has become quite vociferous and making attacks upon women's rights specifically because they can. And when I see Chase mm. Strangio at the mm -hmm. ACLU tweeting daily mm -hmm. about the the trans misogyny of feminists, I'm thinking, well, you've just co-opted two words and put them together yeah, because right. I have a real problem with men claiming that now feminists are being the, the real misogynists here. Like mm -hmm. it's it's again, Mr. Potato Head with language here. Yeah. So we get ourselves into this hall of mirrors where you try to figure out what's going on. And my bottom line has changed over the years. I take accountability for the fact for many years I was using preferred pronouns. And I do think now I was part of the masses that did that. And maybe mm -hmm. if I said no back in 1993, mm -hmm. in more women would have seen me saying no. And, and this goes back to the legal issue. In 1950-whatever, when people were able to transition, where their legal records were able to be changed and so forth, did any legal scholar think that this would one day avalanche into what it's become today? Of course not. No, because they I don't thought think this so. is going to be one in a million, right, one in right. a million. We can just live with that. That's fine. But now it's not one in a million. Right. I think they also saw it still through kind of a um, mental disability lens, meaning that they understood that these people had a kind of a mental pathology, a deep disturbance, and that these things are not conta socially contagious. You can't, you can't, you know, through a process of, of social interaction with people 
or yeah, certain ideas becoming fads, you can't all of a sudden experience transsexuality. I think that was the assumption back then. Um, whereas nowadays, you know, that, that uh, trans identity has been, um, or, or, or uh, is, is, is being depathologized, um, is being normalized, is being set up not only as part of natural human diversity, but in some ways as superior to cisgender identity because it's authentic, right? It's non-conforming. Um, I think that that, that that thinking has has changed 180 degrees. But yes, I think you're right about your characterization of the legal history. Well, you see Katie Montgomery and the UK who goes on about being a better woman than women. And this yeah. is something I've seen quite a bit from the likes of Katie Montgomery and cohorts. Yes. And it, it is disturbing to me at the same time. I always say, look, I've had three children. I still don't know what it's like to feel like a woman. I just know that I am one. It's not like I wake up again and I'm like, oh, get me my smelling salts. I saw a fly. <laughs> the idea that we are supposed to be codified within this kind of Victorian image of us and that you're supposed to be covered in auto grease and have a wrench in your yeah. hand is preposterous yeah. to me. And what's right. happened recently in the UK with a lot of gay rights activists now speaking out and the formation, this is the best, I mean, the chutzpah of mermaids to take LGP Alliance to the charity commission to try and have them disbarred of their charity status has come mm -hmm. back to bite them on the ass because oh, last yes. week, oh, now yes. they're being investigated. <laughs> and, you know, that expression of be careful what you wish for is true mm -hmm. in this case. Mermaids, I mean, no one has talked about what Susie Green did to her son. And yet mm. the UK has very strict laws for anyone going back to Yemen to perform a clitorectomy yeah. on their daughter. Right. And somehow right. this gets a the double standard there. Well, a lot of double yep. standards, including the BBD surgeons who have performed amputations because the client says, my arm ends right here. I think we have a lot to account for as a society where on the one hand, we can say, Rachel Dolezal, what a fraud that no one can be black. I mean, she's white and, and it's offensive that she just put on a little tanning cream and, and did her hair up. And on the other hand, the same person will say, but that's insensitive. You have to use preferred pronouns. She's a woman. Yeah. Like there's a lot of speaking out of both sides of the mouth, intellectually speaking on this point. That's right. And, and I, you know, one thing that I, that I say on podcasts and in my writing, and it, it angers some people and, and for reasons that you could probably figure out why, but, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of banging on and on about gender ideology. Um, and I can explain if you want why I think that that's a very imprecise and to some extent unhelpful concept when trying to describe the ideas animating transgender movement. But um, one thing that I've noticed is that so much of the actual gains on the ground, whether it's you know taking over school boards, pressuring um, local school administrators to revise their bathroom policies, um, uh, you know, voting on, on in referenda regarding bath, things like that, right? So many of the policies on the ground depend on just, you know, left of center voters who are totally uninformed about the particulars of the ideology, to say nothing of the medical um, uh, literature, um, who just want to be kind. For them, all, all of morality reduces to the imperative, be kind. And be kind, they interpret as don't be judgmental. And don't be judgmental, they interpret as don't care what somebody else is doing if it doesn't affect you personally. 
So there's kind of a, at, at, at bottom, it's a kind of apathy. And, and you know, uh, the philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville um, famously warned in his book, Democracy in America, that, that this is what democratic societies tend to produce, this kind of individualism and apathy, a, a total lack of concern for anything that doesn't directly affect me. Um, and you see this, for example, in Matt Walsh's documentary, what, what is a woman, where he goes around and interviews people trying to get to the bottom of why they adopt these really bizarre beliefs. And one time after the, the other, um, it, you know, you, you get the same results. They believe these things because they just, they don't see why they should object to them. It doesn't bother them personally. So why, why should you just not be kind, meaning non-judgmental, meaning apathetic, and just go along with what somebody else says. If it's your reality, fine. As long as it doesn't affect me, why should I care? Um, and I think that so much of the support, certainly in the United States, in the context of our partisan politics, Democrats versus Republicans, so much of the support for, uh, for uh, gender identity policies and education and medicine, and medicine depend on a large body of citizens who are, you know, they want to do what's kind and compassionate, but for the most part, they're apathetic because they don't see how it concerns them personally. And they just want people to do whatever floats their boat. Um, and, you know, this, it's probably not going to surprise you that, that this tends to be more women than men who think in these ways, think in these terms. And that certainly shows up in opinion polling. Women are more supportive of uh, gender self-identification than men when it comes to school policies and medical transition and things like that. On the other hand, I, you know, I also observe how women are sometimes uh, the, the, the most, uh, the fiercest fighters at the forefront of pushing back against this stuff. Um, so, so that's also a quite interesting too. Um, but, but, you know, the kind of natural female empathy, which women have obviously more of than men, empathy, I mean, not female, but, but just empathy, um, seems to be driving so much of this stuff Whereas the actual ideology, you know, you spend five minutes talking to your average white suburban liberal mom. Um, you ask her, you know, what, give, explain one idea of Judith Butler. Assuming she even knows who Judith Butler is, she will not be able to do it. That's not why she supports this stuff. Um, in fact, if she had read Judith Butler, Michelle Foucault, she would know that um, the idea that human beings have a true sex or gender identity is a, a product of these power discourses. Um, if she had read Judith Butler and Michelle Foucault, she would be even more suspicious of medical transition than people like you and me. Um, so, so that's why, you know, I'm hesitant to call this gender ideology because I think it's more just apathy that happens to find an outlet in gender. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, when you kind of work your way up the ladder, uh, when you're going from the average citizen on the ground to kind of the, the ideologues in, in the universities and in the medical field, uh, people at you know, places like the American Academy of Pediatrics um, uh, or in certain university departments or a certain journalists in the media uh, and uh, elected officials in the Democratic Party, there you're going to see a little bit more adherence to gender ideology, although even there you see a lot of very confused and self-contradictory ideas held by the same brain. Um, and you wonder how can this brain be a functioning one if it can't even get its own story straight? Um, so that I think raises a, a slightly more, more puzzling question of how could you believe these two contradictory things, assuming that you have even given, given this stuff some thought, which you clearly have. Um, and then at the very top of the ladder, I think you see kind of the Pritzker phenomenon, right? The, uh, very often autogynophiliac men, um, some gay men too, deep pocket donors, 
um, who seem to have both ideological and financial interests in fueling this, this machine. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to distinguish between those three levels of, of the trans movement, kind of the foot soldiers on the ground uh, tend to be more female, um, effusively and sometimes irrationally empathetic, um, have not really reflected on the ideas animating the, the trans movement, but just want everybody to be kind, meaning apathetic. And then you know, the middle level, kind of the ideologues and the universities and media and everything, and then the top level, um, the people who seem to have more than an ideological interest in, 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 in promoting this stuff. I absolutely agree. And I would add on to this that I think the dearth of this movement is housed within the upper middle classes. It's not something that yeah. if you go to the local brewery and ask the workers there what a woman is, yeah. you're going to get a more tight definition of it that will be replicated by medical science right you're not going to get well right. let me tell you <laughs> joe what do you think no and i think there's a reason that we saw shiloh transition but we mm -hmm. we're not seeing a lot of lower income families producing these children mm -hmm. there's a caveat to this as well because i did interview a filmmaker in india recently who talks about that in fact in india it's happening in the lower classes because mm -hmm. the caste system has fed into this mm -hmm. and there's a certain kind of politics in india that's its own podcast but <laughs> that does grasp the the vulnerability of poor members of society there right, right. but in the english-speaking world for sure this is something that is coming out of elite institutions gender studies departments wiped out feminist studies departments or they mm -hmm. were merged with them so you get mm -hmm. gender and feminist study like whatever and I do have to say that for all my years of saying I'm not a feminist, which I did for so many years, I, because I'm a Marxist, I, I work on class issues. That's mm. ultimately what I see being derailed by this movement as well, that suddenly Elizabeth Warren is worried about she, her on her Twitter <laughs> profile. But what has she done for the people who couldn't pay rent during lockdown? Right. But, but I mean, in her defense, she does at least claim to care about those kind of bread and butter economic issues and economic inequality, whether the solutions she proposes are, are, are rational and good ones is a separate question, but she, she at least does show some, some concern, but you know, you, you, as a Marxist, let me ask you, um, has it ever struck you that the reason why we see kind of gender ideology, and again, I don't like that term, but let's use it. If, there, if, if there's a reason why gender ideology seems to spread like a wildfire among the professional white collar class, but not among the blue collar working class. Um, I mean, to me, a major cause must be that people who are in the working class um, work almost by definition in professions where the gender differences are visible and relevant. You know, if you're a police officer, obviously there's a huge advantage to you being a man over a woman because as a woman, you can't apprehend certain people. You're, they're just going to overpower you easily. Um, if you serve in the military and we know that, that there's class divisions in terms of military service, obviously there's a huge advantage to being a man over a woman in terms of combat ability. Um, and the same with firefighters and all these kinds of things. And even kind of the, let's say the softer uh, voca vocations, plumbers, electricians, you know, those are physical jobs. It doesn't mean that women can't do them. Um, timber workers, you know, whatever, right? But these are all, any job that involves physical labor is going to have usually a distinct advantage to men over women. And so if, if you come from that world and you live and breathe that culture of work, 
it, it's going to make intuitive sense to you that men and women are defined by their physiology and that these, these um, distinctions, sure, there are always going to be exceptions, but they, they, they're relevant and they matter. And we can't override our biology um, by, by wishful thinking. Whereas when you go to the kind of the, the, the middle class, the professional class, you know, as you pointed out earlier in your comment on, on brain and male and female brains, the distinctions between men and women intellectually are only observable at the very extremes of, of, of very high and very low intelligence, right? There, there's more men than women at both of those extremes, at the highest extremes of intelligence and the lowest extremes of intelligence. And yeah, there are other kind of soft skills um, that, that are relevant to the white collar workforce, but, um, but by and large, the differences between men and women among the professional class are relatively negligible. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking about a pediatrician, um, a woman is just as capable of being a phenomenal pediatrician as a man. Um, so if, if, you, if you grew up in a family of doctors or lawyers, um, the differences between the sexes are not obvious to you why we should even insist on them, let alone uh, kind of defend them in the face of a, of a prosecutorial wokeness. Um, so, I mean, as a Marxist, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you'd have to be at least sympathetic to an explanation like that, right? Where the ideas that we have in our heads about things like sex differences are to some extent shaped, maybe even determined by the under, uh, underlying material realities in which we live. Yes, absolutely. You have the material reality of sex, however, that we're seeing in the I think this goes back to the managerial class, the way that universities have been completely restructured such that in many institutions you have more managers than you do professors. Mm. You've got so much happening where grants. I know when I wrote my PhD thesis and I was applying for grants, mm -hmm. I pretty much had to stick gender in there to get I got the funding, <laughs> but there was a, a currency of language that you needed to reflect. Yeah. yeah. And this happens in higher education. And a lot of this stuff has come out of universities right. with the help of funding. But it's not just that. I'm someone who came from academia. I transitioned <laughs> to journalism. Mm -hmm. And one thing I learned in this shift in career was how the media works. Mm. Now, when I wanted to submit that first piece I did in 2013, on the war between feminists and transgender activists in the UK, mm -hmm. I could not submit that to most any leftist publication. I finally mm. got one that did publish it, but they no longer do. Mm. They told me at one point several years later, we can't do any more gender critical pieces. They've been running a lot of trans pieces. Mm. Now, the reason being that there is a cultural cachet and being able to use language to empower yourself. And I think this is very related to a Marxian reasoning in the sense of, well, what happened around the time of this surge of transgender identity? Uh, could the dot-com crash, the Wall Street mm -hmm. crash have something to do with it, where all of my students from NYU were finding jobs as baristas, very few in their chosen fields and professions? Mm -hmm. It was very hard. And yeah. you see this too, I'm sure, where kids are coming out of university and they opt to go to graduate school because, right. hey, I'd take on debt rather than be employed as a barista. Right. And this feeds back into the class issues. And Aaron Saft is not poor. These people are making a good living peddling snake oil. Yeah. And I think there's a real ethical problem there as well. Going back to my comments about how NGOs need to be given some kind of oversight. How right. was it that LGBT charities suddenly tacked on the T? The article you wrote last week, in fact, you talk yeah. about several polls 
and that deal with the treatment of children and of the teaching of gender ideology in schools. Mm -hmm. And there's great irony here in what's going on, even in terms of the way that some schools and some districts are forbidding conversion therapy. Are we talking about what conversion therapy? Mm. Gay conversion therapy? Or that's going on today where you're telling young girls, most of whom are lesbians and or are autistic, that they're really boys? Because yeah. that's gay conversion therapy. And, right. and I, I think it, it needs to be said clearly. Gender affirming care for at least a substantial minority, if not a majority of people, of young people who get it, is gay conversion therapy. That needs to be said loud and clear because that's what, what the evidence, and again, there's no like, you know, conclusive evidence of almost anything in this field, but, but the evidence that we have points in that direction. Um, that if you just leave these kids alone, most of them will come to terms with the fact that their feelings are a reflection of same-sex attraction and not being, being trapped in the wrong body, uh, you know, or any kind of other metaphysical, metaphysical claim. But, you know, I think your, your observation about the soft infrastructure of the trans movement, you know, the, the, the groups, the organizations is spot on. I mean, I've, for me as a political scientist, because that's the field I come from, um, that is one of the most relevant aspects of this whole story in the American context. You know, our system is designed, our political system is designed to make it very difficult for majorities to act. And the way in which uh, uh, it, it makes it difficult for majorities to act is by providing what's known as veto points, meaning these are points at which um, organized interests can enter into the policy process and stop a certain um, uh, law from going forward. And since the 1960s, they've also become very capable of entering the policy process in order to produce new policy changes without uh, majoritarian approval, without legislation. Um, and so or, uh, interest groups in the United States have much, much, uh, much bigger role than they do in almost any other democracy. Um, so if you think about kind of the whole slate of LGB organizations, right, GLSEN, um, I'll, I'll, I'll include the ACLU here because it's played a huge role in, in uh, gay rights and trans and trans rights. Um, GLSEN, the ACLU, the Human Rights Campaign, National Center for Lesbian Rights, GLAAD, Lambda Legal, uh, the Trevor Project, uh, GSAs, right, the Gay Straight Alliance, now it's called Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Um, these organizations until roughly 2015 were either more or less indifferent to the trans issue, or even in some cases outright hostile to it. Um, they were they were about uh, gay marriage and uh, and workplace discrimination above all. Those those were the two most important things. And when the Supreme Court effectively took away the marriage is issue in 2015 by constitutionalizing a right to marriage all across uh, the United States, these organizations all of a sudden were left without the main. Uh, you know, raison d'etre of their existence, um, for which they managed to attract not only donations from deep pocket donors and foundations, but also uh, uh, talent, talented lawyers, ambitious lawyers coming out of elite law schools wanting to go into these organizations to work on the marriage issue. So, you know, what usually happens when these institutions um, realize their goal? Do they declare mission complete and go home? Of course not. Um, they have, they're staffed with these highly ambitious, young, very smart, very talented, very ideological lawyers and staff, and they immediately, and they immediately kind of do what's called mission creep, right? They find something that's close enough to what they were doing previously, 
and start um, activism on that front as well. And so you had a, a whole ecosystem of interest groups and foundations and donors and, uh, and journalists who are connected to them and Democratic Party officials who just, um, you know, the, all of the infrastructure was there and they just, in, in a heartbeat, they just pivoted to the trans issue. Um, and it made it look to the kind of the average American who wasn't paying attention, who doesn't have this kind of political science sense of, of how our system works, um, to the average American, it just looks, it looked, I should say, as if this stuff had been brewing for many, many, many decades, when in fact it hadn't. You know, it's not like there wasn't trans activism. Of course there was. Um, I mean, the word itself only really entered mainstream uh, discussions in the 1990s, but, but you know, transsexuals were discussed and, and, and to some extent visible on the very fringes of American politics in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But, um, but it, it, it seemed, and I think to, to, for a lot of Americans still seems that this stuff has a long, well-established pedigree, whereas in fact, it's just, it's a, it's a classic story of institutional mission creep um, reorientation, capture, whatever, whatever kind of, uh, you know, uh, framework you want to impose on it. Um, that's what happened here. And that's why the movement has been so incredibly successful in, in such a short amount of time. That too, in addition to the media being a major part of this, both major media and big tech, I should say, because mm. I've mm -hmm. witnessed dozens, if not hundreds of women getting kicked off of Twitter for saying he's a man. Mm -hmm. And this is a real problem where the public square has been transformed, especially since lockdown, into the virtual reality governed by Jack Dorsey and all these big heads are able to decide <laughs> what is and what is not acceptable speech, such right. that feminists have lost their spaces. Some came back under new names. Many did not. Many were like, no, I'm going to go to Getter, even though it's right wing. Right. People are not really happy about the fact that you got the Soros Foundation gave the Guardian a quarter of a million dollars two years ago to run pieces on trans issues. Mm -hmm. You've got the Pritzkers funding clinics around the country. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you should take a look at Jennifer Billick's work on this. She's been tracing. Oh, the yeah, money she's wonderful. This. She's wonderful. There's a lot to say for how ideology has been left to creep into the public consciousness through people like Don Lemon on CNN talking about this. And it's a tangential issue, but it should be addressed. The disappearance of women now, two men have a baby and the mother's not there. She was the surrogate, right. but now she's been disappeared. And a lot of feminists right. are connecting dots between all of this because there's mm -hmm. a huge problem within the gay community that now we can outsource women's bodies and call it a day. And that's mm -hmm. their nuclear family. This goes into all sorts of other aspects that you hinted upon earlier that we really have to come to grips with, both within the gay community yeah. and society at large. Yeah, so I mean, so again, let me kind of segue back to the feminism question, because it seems to me that a lot of kind of the, um, let's call it the, the, the meat market that's on fully and unashamedly on, uh, on display in kind of transgender medicine today, where it's all just kind of, you know, bodies, uh, personally curated bodies. I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Give me, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, facial hair, but I want you know, a penis with no testicles, whatever, right? Uh, I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit, but, but you, you understand what I mean. Right, right. This kind of meat market, um, th this understanding of the human person, uh, of the body as just a vessel, a vehicle for the autonomous self that which is disembodied um, to kind of do with it as it, as it pleases. 
um, you know, I, I th you have to be willfully ignorant of feminist history to not see, and I'm obviously not claiming that you are, I know that you're not what I'm about to say, but you yeah. have to be willfully ignorant of feminist thought and history to not see how this has a strong lineage in feminist thinking. The idea that, that you know, we should have a right of autonomy over our body and its reproductive potentials and processes um, you know, there's a, there's, it's, it's hard to ignore that there's a strong overlap between the abortion issue and the, 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 the trans issue. And yes, you can definitely be pro-choice and be anti, you know, medical transition for kids. I, I think you can, you can have a consistent philosophical position that way. But I think in general, if we're, you know, offering kind of higher level reflections, um, the idea that, 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 that the human being is a person that exists independent of and in total sovereignty over his or her body, um, that medicine is a tool for us to create these kind of personally curated physical experiences. Um, you know, there, there is a strong overlap there with ideas such as um, I should have a total right of autonomy and choice over everything that goes on in my body. And so again, I, I'm not suggesting that if you want to be anti-medical transition for kids, you also have to be anti-abortion, not at all. I am suggesting, however, that we have to think carefully and deeply about the moral principles, about the philosophical anthropology that's animating these movements. And I would like to see, just as I have seen among some people on the right, I'm not going to say that it's everyone, because it's not, but on some people on the right, I've, I'm starting to see a little bit more sympathy for feminist arguments about gender, gender stereotypes, gender roles. Um, I'm seeing sympathy towards gay rights um, and, 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 and an emerging understanding that, that as, as radical as gay rights may have seemed even a decade ago, there's a way in which it's actually more moderate than conservatives may have thought, that it's more pro-family, more pro-reality. Um, grounded in, in kind of an appreciation for the body and its limitations in a way that we previously didn't think. In the same way that you see conservatives moving maybe an inch or two to the left, I would like to see feminists and gay rights activists moving an inch or two to the right. Uh, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the, the shortcomings of the ideologies that have animated our thinking um, for the last few decades. I see what you're saying. And I think what I've been witnessing in the UK specifically, where there's been a lot of accusations amongst feminists who collaborate across party lines, mm -hmm. they've been lambasted as Nazis, as mm -hmm. racist. It's mm -hmm. quite vile to witness when these are women saying, well, women exist on the right. I want women to join arms right. and fight against this because right. women who are conservative are still women, right? Mm -hmm. They still have the mm -hmm. right to privacy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you see these purity leftists going about calling names to these women. And it, yeah. it's shocking to me, the lack of solidarity, even amongst what is a single issue movement mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. It's actually given me a, quite a few lessons in humility in my former mm. wokeness. When I was younger, I had my wokeish moments. We all did. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's very important that we learn to listen yeah. and stop this. Uh, well, you've seen it on Twitter where a trans activist and a feminist are discussing something and the feminist says, but and the trans activist says, you're a racist. Mm -hmm. That came out of nowhere, mm -hmm. but that's the go-to card now. Mm -hmm. And it's very odd to me to see these derails of discussions because the answers aren't obtainable often on the trans mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. And then you see the 
infighting amongst feminists where you went to the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. I sat in the audience. They invite. Well, you went there, and it, yeah. it becomes really splicing hairs. Yeah. for what is ostensibly supposed to be a movement about women's rights. Right. So we're supposed to just dump right-wing women on the corner and like fix yourself, your issues? No. And, yeah. and it's really been eye-opening to me to witness. Yeah, I think you're you're 100% right. Uh, I mean, there's kind of a push. And, and by the way, this is true on the right and the left. Um, right, you can right. see these, the, uh, these kind of uh, pushes for purity, purity tests. Um, I like to tell people... I don't like purity tests and I have no room for purity tests in my coalition. If you have, if you do purity tests, um, you know, I don't want to be in a coalition with you. Some people don't get the joke, but regardless. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a twist on Woody Allen, <laughs> isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I mean, I mean, you know, American politics in particular, I think the way our political system is set up is by design intended to force these coalitions into existence. Um, meaning if you, you know, if you, if you practice kind of purity politics, you're going to be shut out for the most part, you're going to be shut out of, of power for a long time. There will be hiccups in which you do have power. I think we're seeing one of those hiccups right now. Um, but, but by and large, uh, coalitions are what uh, govern the day. And, um, and, and I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised to see people on the left and on the right uh, be willing to work with one another, collaborate, publish in one another's magazines, read and share one another's articles, um, knowing that they disagree about everything except for the trans issue. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. You know, that gives me hope that, that we, can, we can still kind of set aside our ideological commitments when we recognize that there's something that's just demonstrably and obviously wrong that needs to be addressed. Thank you.